agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm floating on air like a Chinese balloon. Oh, very good. I like that one a lot. So, And we will be talking about Chinese spy balloons as, as well as a bunch of other things, including the Tyree Nichols killing, the Durham probe, and attorney, former attorney, attorney general Barr's role in it, uh, the removal of Ilan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, and a bunch more. And we're going to get at that in just one second. Okay, so we open with the killing of Tyree Nichols by five Memphis police officers after a traffic stop on January 7th. Early this week, police body cam footage of the incident was released to the public, and that happened the day after a grand jury indicted five officers on a number of charges, including second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. Like a lot of other people, you know, I watched the footage and I was, I guess, stunned and sickened would be uh, the words that come to mind at, at that level of brutality that I saw and what seemed to me to be complete lawlessness on the part of those officers, as well as just the indifference of everyone to, to, this, to this guy's plight after he had been severely beaten uh, by, by the police. Uh, and, you know, in, in the wake of this, President Biden spoke with the Nichols family. He told them that uh, he would make a renewed push for Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And we talked about that when 2021, when it came out, just some refresher here, it would, among other things, it would provide states grants to set up uh, independent procedures, processes to investigate police misconduct, excessive use of force. It would restrict the application of qualified immunity for police officers, and it would require that state and local forces that get federal funding have anti-discrimination and anti-bias, anti-racial profiling training. And this legislation passed the House in 2021, nearly unanimous support by Democrats, nearly unanimous opposition by Republicans, and then it went to the uh, 50-50 Senate where it, uh, of course, died. So. Jay, what's your take on what happened in Memphis and more broadly, what, you know, if anything, can or should be done at, I guess, the local, state or, or national level to make what happened to Tyree Nichols uh, less likely, far less likely to happen in the future? Um, yeah, I guess my, my response to the second question is, is I don't know, right? If, if I had that answer. Um, I'd be, you know, hopefully somewhere uh, <laughs> positioned, far more in a, a better position to do something about it, uh, or I'd be out there uh, pushing that answer everywhere. Um, in in terms of how and why, uh, I I'm going to go back to um, it was not long after um, the uh, the Floyd killing, and I had I had. Uh, sat down with a, a good friend of mine who is a police chief, now retired police chief, and, and you got his thoughts. And it, it, it came down for him 
this is somebody who'd done this for 30 years, not beating people to death, but been a police officer for 30 years. Um, that it's just a matter of, of these officers lost their humanity. They, they forgot that this was a, a real person. Um, and in, in his, his view, it, it wasn't a, a racial thing. It was a, we're the police, you're not uh, sort of thing. And, um, to me, that that is the the biggest issue. I don't know how to solve it, but I, I think it's it's an issue you see anywhere where you're dealing with people who are just empowered by the state. Um, and and I think uh, you know it's it it goes back to you know the um, the, the Stanford uh, prison study, uh, right? That was done back in the '60s where they. Um, did the experiment where certain students were chosen to be, you know, jailers, and the other people were the were the 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 prisoners, and and what the study showed. Now, as parts of this have been disputed and and perhaps debunked over the years, um, but the conclusion was: listen, these these otherwise normal students, when they're put in this position of power over someone else, um, become sadistic, right? They they abuse that power. Um, and to me, that's that's one of those, you know, conservative uh, gems, right? That that uh, you look at human nature has no uh, has no history that that people, if you give them uh, too much power without uh, some sort of checks, they're always going to abuse it, um, no matter how good they are, uh, no matter how well trained they are um, in that heat of the moment. Um, yeah, they they. They fall back on something else. So I, I don't I don't know as far as the answers go in terms of um, police reform. I think uh, a lot of the stuff that was in the uh, George, George Floyd Act and a lot of it mirrored stuff that was in uh, Tim Scott's uh, Police Reform Act or, or not act, but uh, bill. Um, I think those are, are those those are good uh, and positive reforms. Um, that said, I don't know that any of them, any of those. Um, provisions would have made a difference here. Um, and I'm, I'm in a bit of a loss as I think you are too, right? I mean, when one of our earliest shows, um, we had a talking about a, a police brutality case and, and you and I came up with the, the brilliant solution that body cams, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you made ago. the point and I, and I agreed that, well, geez, yeah, these body cams aren't terribly expensive. Everybody can get them. Um, everybody knows they're going to be watched. Um, you know, let's get body cams for everybody and, uh, that should solve the problem. Um, but, but it obviously hasn't right. Uh, all these officers knew they had body cams, they had the body cam on, uh, everyone knows they're being watched and filmed these days. Um, but yet they still did it. So it's, it's, it's one of those, I, well, like I, I said, they're, I, I, I guess I would, um, now, we've been talking about this for a while, for many years, as you said, and I guess I'm, I'm at less of a loss to know, to feel like I know things that would be helpful. I think when talking about the Floyd Act and the extent to which it would have prevented or could have potentially prevented the sort of things we saw in Memphis, I agree and I disagree. I, I agree that directly, no, it wouldn't have done anything about those officers on that, in that incident. But the idea, I think, uh, is that police should feel that they are going to be held accountable. Because if you ask yeah. the question, why is it that they can have body cams and yet still do that? Well, maybe partly it's because they don't feel like they're going to be 
called to account? Why is it that paramedics can come to the scene and for 19 minutes basically administer no care to a guy who's writhing on the ground in pain while the cops are off joking about, uh, you know, the, the, the stop they just made and beating the guy's ass? I mean, it's because in large part, I think that they feel like they're not going to be held accountable. And so things like uh, having investigatory independent forces with some real teeth Things like restricting qualified immunity in a meaningful way, I think those are the sort of things that they may not do a lot for some of the cops who've been the bad apples who are been on the street for a while. But I think it does set a tone going forward. And all of a sudden, if people who we give the authority to arrest, detain, to physically harm people, if they start to feel like, well, wait a second, there actually is a non-trivial chance that I will be called to account, that I am not above the law, then I think that's going to result in a change of behavior over time. I don't, I don't disagree entirely. Um, but, I, you know, again, I, I look at, uh, in this case, there, there were consequences, uh, quick and immediate, right? They all were fired immediately. Um, five of them have been indicted. Um, for criminal penalties that could put him behind bars for, I mean, what, something like 20 years? Um, that's, you know, that's, that's some quick and, and harsh accountability, but it still happened. Um, so no, I'm not, I'm not saying that, like I said, that the, the reforms in the, um, Floyd Act, um, aren't helpful or aren't good. I'm saying it's, there, there's something more. I, I'm saying, I think this is, this is probably sort of a problem that, you you can't easily legislate yourself out of. Right. And I agree um, to the extent because it's that- a perennial human nature problem. Um, and I, I don't know. But I think you would agree and- with the you would agree with the founders that that uh, power needs to be power needs to be. Oh, checked. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, it's 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 interesting to me that although conservatives, generally speaking, are very strong opponents of unions, particularly public sector unions. The unions that they tend to be the most supportive of and oftentimes extraordinarily supportive of are are, uh, police unions, fire unions. And uh, oftentimes, I mean, these unions, their their primary job, of course, is to protect their members. And, And I think in many instances, the sort of deals that unions and cities make, these police unions make, uh, you know, give give police uh, a level of cover from responsibility or things like qualified immunity. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I should mention qualified immunity applies to civil suits, which oftentimes can be the only way that those who feel they've been wronged or harmed by by the police can can get some kind of compensation. Uh, I think, you know, there should be some reform here, but I I will, will say that I think the Floyd Act went a little bit too far in that the Floyd Act made what, what I think is a reasonable change in that it stipulated that you can't claim immunity if the violation hasn't been clearly established in law at the time. And the reason why this is important is because which is which is sort of what the case law says, not sort of. It is what the case law says at this yeah, point. But I mean, it, it and you might think, well, you know, certainly that that shouldn't be too big of a burden, but it is. I'll give you an example. There was a case in Texas in 2017 
a guy pours gasoline on himself and threatens to set himself on fire, the police come to the scene and they start saying, well, you know, we probably shouldn't tase the guy because it'll probably set him off. And then one of them tases him anyway. And sure enough, it, it sets him off and kills him. And that was covered under uh, qualified immunity. And, and, and that's the kind of because there was nothing in case law. Yeah, on that, said, that, because that specific factual situation had not occurred. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and and so I think that that's reasonable to say that, well, you know, you need to that needs to be a little bit broader, not necessarily that specific fact pattern being covered. Um, but where I think the Floyd Act went a little bit too far is it also eliminated immunity in instances where uh, an officer was acting in good faith and uh, I think reasonably uh, the word is reasonably believed that their conduct was lawful. And I think that seems that yeah. seems to me to be an important standard to keep in place. But the idea that, you know, you can you can, uh, in, in fact, set somebody on fire and say, well, you know, I uh, there's no case law on that. I guess I'm covered. That to me is ridiculous. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and that's been sort of the, the issue with qualified immunity is that that it it often comes down to and this isn't even necessarily a i don't know if it's a legal doctrine problem or maybe it's just a judicial application problem um because i'll i'll you know be frank i mean the the courts i don't want to say favor the police but if you walk in as a police officer um there is an unstated and it's not in the law presumption sure. um that you get that uh, you don't get if you are a defendant yeah yeah. Right. And I think I think that that's society wide. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, if, a, if a guy comes up to you uh, in uniform and says, hi, I'm officer so and so here is, you know, this is what I believe to be true. You you are more likely to accept that person's uh, word than you are someone who's like, hi, I'm I'm the guy who's just been arrested or I'm a, you know, ex-con or whatever. Um, and that's. You know, again, we we can put all the the, the language in the law that says uh, we don't give presumptions one way or the other. But uh, but again, it comes back to there's sort of a human nature and a human element to this. And I, I think uh, courts in a lot of cases tend to err on the side of of uh, granting immunity. And absent, um, I would say, absent any sort of legislative guidance on this yeah. issue, which is something that Congress could absolutely provide. Of course, state legislatures can do the same thing. And uh, I think we, yeah. there needs to be much more of that, though. Politically, that tends to be yeah. uh, somewhat unpopular, I think, with a lot of with a lot yeah. of. And the, down, the downside is, I mean, what you don't want to do is subject uh, uh, police departments uh, uh, to and, and police officers to uh, frivolous civil suits. Sure. Uh, or suits line. that are I mean, you know, the, the classic sort of what you would think that would be in um, uh, immunity is. Uh, there is, you know, there's there's a, a pursuit, uh, dangerous criminals on the run, uh, a cop runs the light, chasing them and, you know, smashes into your car. Right. Um, that's the kind of situation that qualified immunity would would be designed to cover. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, that it is it is incidental to the to law enforcement. Um, uh, you know, there's so long as the police officer had the good faith belief that this was a dangerous person that need to be needed to be pursued and so, so forth. Um, uh, but I, I think, yeah, there, there's, I think there needs to be bounds on qualified immunity. I think the strictures that the way the court has interpreted that, well, you know, well, look, the facts on that case, on so that case, the, you know, the, the, you know, 
robbery took place on a Tuesday and yeah, exactly. a Thursday. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. those, those really fine distinctions, I think that's, that's incorrect. Um, but I go back to the other, other point though, um, straight, straight out constitutional violations, um, uh, you know, 1983 violations, uh, as they call them in the section 1983 that you can sue when your constitutional rights are, are violated. Um, like beating someone who's helpless. Yeah. Um, that's never been covered by qualified immunity. Right. Right. You know, intentional, intentional, um, um, tortious, uh, illegal acts, uh, have, have always been outside of qualified immunity. Um, so uh, yes, that's, that's when I, I say, I, I agree with you that I think there ought to be some reform in the qualified immunity doctrine. Um, uh, but, but that it's, it's not going to be a, a panacea. Sure. No, I don't think anything will be a panacea just just because of the nature the nature of power. But, but I think more more broadly, you know, I I I'll come back to this, and I've talked about this a number of times. And it tends to get some some folks, I guess, on the left uh, upset. But 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 I feel that we have to both hold people who we give the authority to use force uh, to a higher, a much higher standard than we currently do. But that also means then that I think we need to pay them a lot more than they get paid. Uh, you know, the, the median salary for a Memphis cop is, uh, around $57,000. And you, when you consider the stressfulness of that sort of job and, and what we are asking these folks to do day in and day out, that, that to me doesn't seem that, that to me seems low. And, you know, people make decisions about careers based on financial incentives in no small part. And so the, if you keep that if you keep that salary relatively low compared to other things people can be doing, you're going to change your applicant pool. You're going to change the sort of people yeah. you get. And so I for a long time, I've said we need to pay cops a lot more and we need to hold them to much higher standards. And I think longer term, that's the sort of thing that is likely to give us better results, as well as and I I don't disagree with people who say cops shouldn't be social workers, mental health workers. I do think that there needs to be more of a, uh, a differentiation in trying to get the right people out to the right scenes. That can be maybe tricky to do in practice, though some cities have had some success with it. And I think there need to be more uh, experiments, more programs that do that as well. Well, in, in this case, though, I mean, this was um, a special task force, yeah, right? It was, unit. Yeah, it was created to yeah. be essentially badasses. Exactly. And that's, well, I mean, right. and that, I mean, this, that's part this of that sort of the mindset. dirty, hairy, you yeah. know, get tough on crime. That's, that's what they recruited these guys for. Yeah, exactly. Um, and those are the folks who need the most, though, I would say those are exactly the sort of units that need extra, extra, yeah. uh, you know, oversight built into them. The more kind of paramilitary and badass you make a unit, the more I want to see some very, very serious oversight. So those folks know that, yeah, you can be badass, but if you step over the line, you're going to get stumped yeah. on. Yeah. And that's well, and so this, this, this brings me to something else that, that, and I kind of want to get, get your thoughts on, because there is all this, and I don't disagree with you on um, lease salaries, although I will, I will point out, that in most cases, it depends on the on the cities that you're in, obviously. Um, but there is there is often a pretty big uh, back end pension. Um, sure, and that's going to be a factor as well. Yeah, yeah, you know where you can you know you can retire um, like, like like my friend did. He's he's retired at fifty. Um, so, um, and and I think making more than and again, it was almost ironically, right, making more uh, than he was making for most of his career. 
Right. Because um, of how those pensions um, are structured and that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So um, I, I would, I would prefer, uh, you know, more upfront pay and, and uh, give them a 401k type thing. Right. But again, that comes down to union bargaining and so forth. Um, but in terms of, there's always this discussion, discussion about what well, is if we have more training, if we, if we train these people more. And to me, it's just sort of, well, what, what training do you need? Um, to know that you don't beat an, an unarmed, helpless person to death. See, right? I, 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 mean, I agree I with you. No, it's not like there's like the, the there was that with that we had a, one extra page in the manual. Yeah, I, um, I agree with yeah. you, but but I think it's it's not a question of well, it's partly a question of training, but I would say it's more the thing that we neglect more is is screening. And when you have issues, when okay, you have, no, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, but but the problem, of course, is when you have instances where people are reluctant to want to be many people reluctant to want to become law enforcement officers because of all these issues and so right. forth. And then I mean, you can only do so and much. You need you need people to do the yeah. job, and the yeah, exactly. you, you don't have the best the best candidate pool. Yeah, you work with the um, applicant pool you have, and so I think I agree with you. the The way that you really change the culture is by changing sort of the psychological profile makeup of the people and that that's a pretty you know that's a pretty significant effort that would require a, a lot of years and, and a lot yeah. of you know but but i think it's it's something that's long overdue well I'll say, I, I think we've talked about this before and this is going years back um because this is a, a perennial topic um i served on our local civil service commission for my, you know, suburban Cleveland, Cleveland city. Um, and what, what the, the way the, the process works is there was a pool of applicants who take the test. And there's also sort of a, a additional psychological sort of tests and interviews and so forth after that. Um, and in order for someone to be taken off of the eligible list, uh, the, it, it's typically the, the department or the chief of police has to go to the civil service commission and say, listen, uh, I have concerns about this person being on the list because of X, Y, and Z. And then there's a vote uh, and there's a potential appeal from that vote. Um, but I can tell you that in my experience and the department that I worked with, uh, the the police chief uh, was extremely vigilant in just that kind of screening mm -hmm. um, and, and bringing to to the you know civil service uh, uh, commission's attention listen, we have, we have concerns about this guy. He passed the test. Uh, but you know, he does have, you know, his, his answers to this, this questions were, um, uh, evasive. We didn't trust him here. He, you know, failed the polygraph, whatever. Um, so those, I mean, those were all the, the types of, of, of things that were in place. Um, now again, in where I live in a, a suburban community that is, uh, Look, we we border the city of Cleveland, um, and there's crime, but we're not a big city police department. It's not Cleveland crime, um, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's it's and and I don't know the the level of resources, obviously, in in various cities are going to. Um, and, and not uh, just that, I would from argue one place to another, but I, I would argue it's one thing to get certain uh, results on a on a test in a room somewhere. It's another thing yeah. to actually observe how a person acts in real world situations. And so the problem with that, of course, is once you go through the trouble of initial training for everyone, and there's there's maybe an inclination to not want to wash people out, 
in that yeah. in that probationary period because you've already put a lot of time and money in. But but I would say that it's you know I, I'm not saying you need Navy SEAL level you know washout kind of yeah. uh, levels, but I think certainly. I would feel more comfortable if more people didn't make it through that process because it would suggest to me that the screening process then is actually working and, and you're getting people out when you can because that's about the only point. Once once you get through that probationary period, typically then you have a, some sort of almost like a property right to your job and it's very difficult to yeah. deprive you of that after the fact because of various – well, the agreements between the unions and, and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and the cities. So my, my police chief friend, um, and uh, he's actually done training at like Ohio's Police Academy, um, and his his suggestion, I think this is, is a good one, um, is to open up uh, the the policing ranks and let more um, younger uh, people, college students who are interested in law enforcement, right? Um, you know, serve what what may you know, like for lack of a better word, be called internships, right? But actually putting them out there, um, uh, and and seeing how how to react and how they react, and letting them get get a taste of this. Is this you know what you really want? And then after they go and graduate from the academy, you know, they're going to come out better prepared um, to deal with the real life situations. And I'm I'm, I'm sure I imagine there's some places that do things like that already. Um, sort but, of like ride-alongs on steroids, sort of thing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, See certain liability or, or and other actually, issues. Yeah, with that, I think but. I think there's I think there's, I think in Ohio there's a limit or, or a age limit about when you could actually become a peace officer. I think right. that was sort of the issue. Like maybe you can't actually be sworn in as a peace officer until you're 21 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and we should I could I could get him on the show probably to talk about this. Um. But the idea is 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 lower that level that you know you can actually have these. See that you know, that seems to me to be kind of subject to supervision. That that to me seems going in the wrong direction. I, I would argue. I would say you don't expand the pool by just kind of changing your standards. I think that you know younger younger folks, other things being equal, tend to have more issues with impulse It'll control. Be even more idiots, yeah. Exactly. You know. So I I don't know that I would feel too comfortable about that exactly. But there was one other. Part of this I wanted to raise with you, the, the issue of race. Now, in this case, the, the officers involved were black. Everyone involved, uh, including uh, Tyree Nichols, uh, were, were black. And the Memphis po- Memphis's police chief, also uh, a black person, said that, well, because everyone's black in here, it takes race off the, cha- the table as a contributing factor. But uh, some folks argue, no, that's not actually the case, that just because these are black police officers who essentially beat to death uh, a black young man, that doesn't mean that this isn't racially motivated. And uh, there were plenty of outlets on the right who sort of mocked that view. But I think there's something, I don't know that I you know fully agree with that, but I think certainly there's enough evidence to suggest that you, know, you can be biased against the racial group and be part of that racial group. And so while it might not be as clear cut and obvious as if they were, you know, for whatever, for five, you know, KKK hood wearing white guys. Right. I I don't, I don't know that it's ridiculous on the face of it to say that there's a racial component here, but I wanted to get your view on that. So I've said this, um, this is like, like, uh, like politics guy flashback. Again, going (laughs) back to some of like our early. early Well, sadly, yeah, we've been talking about this a lot over the years. Yeah. Um, it, it's my contention, uh, that 
many of the issues uh, that we put under the file of the category of race uh, are not so much racially motivated as they are socially economically motivated. Um, and I think there are there is more of a social economic bias um, that that transcends uh, race, and and I think that's the uh, guiding factor um, in something like this, right? I, I don't, um, and I'm not I'm not saying race isn't isn't a part of it or isn't involved at all, um, but what I'm saying is is I think. Um, you know, if, if you, if you look at the, so, so for example, there was the, you know, years ago and during the Obama administration, the Henry Gates case, um, Henry Gates was a Harvard professor and locked himself out of his house, was trying to get back in the police show up and, uh, give him a hard time. Henry Gates is, is African-American. Um, and there was this, this sense and Obama said, you know, the police acted stupidly. Um, and he was right. Um, uh, but there, there was a sense of, look, if Henry Gates, who is a 70 something professorial looking sort of guy, um, every time I've always ever seen pictures of him, right. He's always kind of wearing a, you know, a sport coat yeah. and, you know, tweet, you know, uh, he does not look like a street hoodlum by any stretch of the imagination. Um, because, you know, he's outside of the profile age wise, he would seem to be outside of the profile socioeconomically of that sort of thing. And, and so I, I think those are, there's, there's those sort sorts of issues. Um, and again, going back to, um, uh, what my police chief friend had, had said when, when we talked about, um, some of these cases, he said, it's, it's less that the police see this person as black or white. Um, but as they see him as this is just another dirtbag. Well, I, I don't, um, I don't get how that follows though. If you see somebody with, you know, with, uh, like you said, uh, like professor Gates, well, I'm, saying, I'm saying that I'm saying the Henry Gates situation would be more an indication of racism. Okay. Yeah. But, but I mean, right. It, right. That the only factor you would say, Hey, it's a black guy. Uh, I think that that does right. indicate that there's some sort of racial animus. Yeah, because I mean, you um, take a look at the Tyree Nichols thing. I mean, I he seemed like he was driving like a regular car that anyone yeah. would drive. It didn't. It wasn't some. You know, it wasn't some kind of I don't know tricked out sort of. Oh, this looks like the kind of car that a gang person would drive or yeah. something yeah. like that. He he didn't look uh, in any way suspicious right. as far he wasn't as I could tell colors or uh, yeah as far as yeah. I could tell the only thing that would distinguish him from you know from you or me is that he was younger and he was black yeah and so that that to me suggests well yeah I mean race uh, you know people who say well would he have been would, would this have happened had he been white I think it's a reasonable question to to ask and, and you know I think in many instances in the past at least the uh, a reasonable answer to that is no regardless of the race I think, you're, I think you're probably right so that's what I'm saying I wouldn't Gotcha. I'm not saying that you take race out of the equation altogether. Um, but, but no, I, I see I, what you're saying. I, I agree that a lot of these issues, there is an overlap between race and socioeconomic. Where where we probably exactly. part company is, I probably see race, generally speaking, as a larger independent factor than you might, perhaps. Correct. So, Correct. There we go. And I, I would I would reject the idea. And, and you're not saying this, uh, but someone on the far left do that. The, the very idea of policing is somehow birthed in racism and, and so forth. Well, I, um, well I, I'll, I'll say yes and no. The, I mean, you certainly can trace back 
the origins of certain law enforcement bodies to slavery in that era. But I don't think that that means that it's inexorably bound up in that sort of thing. So, so no, exactly. I would, yeah, 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 I would, I would not agree with that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, you know, before I move on, do you, do you expect this to lead to any sort of legislation or executive action or anything like that at the, at the federal? Certainly some things are, you know, happened already in Memphis, right? They disbanded that unit and so forth. But do you expect to see anything, any action from Congress or from, uh, or from the Biden administration on this that would significantly change? Yeah, actually I do. It wouldn't surprise me if, if there could be a a bill that could come out. Cause I think, um, you know, with the, when we had the dueling, um, Tim Scott, uh, policing um, bill and the uh, George Floyd, the the difference came down to that scope of qualified immunity, um, in large part. So I, I think you know you you will you may see a a Republican House bill um, that could come out that would be similar to the Tim Scott bill, and uh, you know you'd see we'll just see how it how it plays out in the Senate. And you, you don't think that so so you think that Republicans would be willing to offer half a loaf and Democrats would be willing to take it. That's that's incredibly optimistic. I don't, I don't, know, I don't yeah, know if Democrats don't know. would be willing to take it. Yeah. I, I don't even know that. Well, I, I think Republicans might be willing to offer a crust, but uh, I, if they were actually willing to offer half a loaf, I would hope the Democrats would take it uh, in lieu of, of nothing. But I don't even think it's going to go that far. So, but I would like to think that your more optimistic view of this is the is the right one, and we shall see in the in the weeks to come. So moving on, late last week, the New York Times published the results of a fairly extensive investigation into the Durham investigation, which was launched back in 19 or 2019, 1919, that'd be a long one, uh, when then Attorney General William Barr appointed Durham to head an investigation into the FBI's handling of their 2016 investigation into uh, allegations of ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. And in late 2020, Barr named Durham special counsel so that way the investigation could continue into the Biden administration. And now after over three years investigating uh, somewhere around $6.5 million, there's been one conviction, a low-level FBI attorney who uh, pleaded guilty to doctoring an email that was part of the justification for a visa warrant on Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign advisor. And there were two other prosecutions against Igor Danchenko and Michael Sussman. Those resulted in acquittals. Now, a final report from Durham is expected soon uh, within well, within the next month or two, I would expect. Uh, this month's long New York Times review of the investigation found that or alleges that contrary to Barr's claim that the investigation, in his words, cannot and will not be a tit for tat exercise and standards would not be lowered just to re- just to achieve a result that at least you can make the case is what happened, at least in part, or maybe at least that Barr inappropriately interfered in what's supposed to be an ostensibly independent investigation in order to sort of try to tip the scales. At least that's kind of how the New York Times investigation sort of comes out, I think. And it seems to me that regardless of how much actual steering of the investigation Barr did, I think it's reasonable for the public to expect that an attorney general wouldn't be getting weekly updates on the kind of day-to-day operations of a, of a special counsel investigation, 
and that the attorney general wouldn't be, you know, hanging out, having dinner and drinks with the special counsel, uh, going on trips as Barr, Barr and Durham did on multiple occasions, at least according to various sources that were interviewed by the Times. And in response to the, all of this, Barr spoke to the Los Angeles Times this week and said the idea that there was a thin basis for doing it, meaning the Durham investigation, doesn't hold water. And he also said one of the duties of the attorney general is to protect against the abuse of criminal intelligence powers, that they're not abused to impinge on political activity. So I felt it was my duty to find out what happened there. And Barr said he violated no Department of Justice rules by meeting, eating, drinking, traveling with Durham. And he criticized the Times reporting, saying they ignored some fundamental facts as to why some of the information that Durham was seeking was very important information. So, Jay, what's your what's your view on all this? Um, I you know, if, if you're if you if you just to uh, if you just were to pull me aside on the street and say, quick, uh, New York Times or Bill Barr, um, you can probably guess where where I'm I'm headed on that. Um, I I don't I don't know that. Again, my my sense, uh, and we'll have to wait for the, the final Durham report. Is uh, I I don't see anything inappropriate or how if even if they're if you want to say having dinner or something like that. I mean these these are people who've known each other for years and years. Um, it, it is in a uh, a, a problem, right? Uh, well, well, I guess I guess, I guess, I'm I guess the, on that. and I guess the whole thing if, if the genesis of the of the, of the probe is. Uh, Durham, I want you to find out um, if there's anything uh, inappropriate abuses of power that have gone on in my agency. Um, I, I, I think it's appropriate for him to be in contact uh, with him throughout. So um, absent, absent anything saying, you know, Barr somehow insisted on conclusions or um, tried to uh, dissuade Durham from from other evidence or from doing things or, or uh, had him investigate people who shouldn't have been investigated. Uh, my sense is this is sort of the New York Times being the New York Times. Well, let me um, push back on that. And, I, and I, 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 would, I, would add, I would add it also, um, the, the timing to me on, on these kind of things tends to be sort of uh, suspect. And, and the, the, the whole, I, the, the, the headline is, is sort of, you know, whatever, Durham investigation of failure. Uh, it's, it's sort of a conclusory uh, opinion uh, based headline. Well, I so. think I, I think I think you're wrong. I, I, I well, I won't say I think you did. I'll disagree with you on a number of accounts here. From my view, the narrative is this. Uh, Bill Barr, essentially, you could argue, campaigned for the attorney general uh, position in the Trump administration based on his clear and vociferously uh, often stated view that the FBI's, that the crossfire hurricane investigation, the Russia investigation was, shouldn't have happened, that it was problematic yes. from the beginning. So this is his pre-existing view. So then yeah. when he gets into power, he has the ability to launch an investigation into that investigation. But he says, well, I'll do that with a special counsel. And I, I, that makes sense to me. I agree with his statement that, hey, you know, if, if we're concerned, if there's a, any reason to believe that, in fact, uh, law enforcement is, you, is going after people for political reasons, that's, that's a huge problem. Absolutely. But given his, given his statements that clearly bias him already, right, we, we know those statements are out there. I would think that it's 
totally reasonable, to, despite what kind of relationship he might have had in the past with Durham, is to say is to say to Durham to being listen for this for the for the sake at least of appearances. We should perceptions, not, yeah. Exactly, and I think that's and I Barr did not do that, and I think that's that's completely so. He's right in one instance that yes, I think I, I supported. I've I've said from the beginning I supported the Durham investigation, which it seems to me, barring some bizarre last minute thing. I mean, the grand jury was dismissed a while ago. Not much is not much seems going to come out of this. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It just means it didn't – in a way, you could say, well, this is a positive thing because those who thought that the FBI was rife with corruption and this was a horrible miscarriage of justice, well, it doesn't seem to be after a, a lengthy, extensive three, almost four-year-long investigation that there was much of that. And that's a, that's a good thing, right. I, I would Although think. Although there is a large body of the Durham report that is said to be still classified and you know, and, and probably will be when it's still actually circulated, sure. still be classified. But, and unless but, it, but my point unless is, it turns up in somebody's garage. Yeah, we well, might not yeah. know. So. But my, my point is, is that based on uh, based on what we've seen from publicly available information, indictments, convictions, court cases, that sort of thing, there just wasn't much there there. And, okay. and any, I mean, I, I guess you could have that, that again. I'll wait for the full report. Sure. Um, but but no, look, I, I, I take your point on the. Uh, would have been better for perception's sake uh, for Barr to absolutely have kept Durham at the arm's length and and so forth. Um, yeah, I think it, it would have just in terms of, of helping the optics. Um, but I don't see him doing that as uh, a problem on the merits, right? I think it's more an optics problem. Um, just because uh, had he had he done that, he would have saved the hassle of having a to deal you know, with a, a New York Times story. I, I hate the word optics, and I hate the word All optics right. because it's one of those Perception. it's one of those crappy PR words. And I think it it really matters in that you should not appearance of impropriety. Well, well, not only that? that, but if you are a strong opponent of something, and you appoint somebody to investigate it, and you have regular contact with them, I think it's it's. It doesn't make sense to me to assume that, well, you're not going to have some influence over that person. Is that person completely impervious, uh, somehow above any sort of influence? I, I think that's that's an incorrect view of how human beings work. And so it's not just optics. It's not just perception. It's saying, you know what? I think it's very important as a matter of justice that I not attempt to put my put my thumb on the scale here and to avoid even the possibility of that, I'm going to stay away from this investigation except for in any case it's absolutely necessary. And Bill Barr didn't do that. And so I'd say he failed in his role here. So I, I differentiate the role of, of Bill Barr because between uh, as listen, the guy, the chief prosecutor who appoints the special prosecutor as it were um, and, and that of a judge, because look, he's, he's not a judge. Um, he's still ostensibly in charge of, of the prosecution. Um, so I, I, that's why I, I see that. that I would agree if it were a DOJ investigation, than, but I disagree because he appointed a special counsel precisely because it was an internal thing. And there was a very real reason to think that, that an internal, an invest, sorry, an agency investigating itself 
would be biased. Now, normally you yeah. think, well, it's going to be biased for itself. Biased the other way. But right. in this that, case, that was my point. But, 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 but this is different because in this case, you have the person in charge of the agency of DOJ, the attorney general, being on record as being biased in the other direction. Yeah. And, but and, perhaps that bias is justified. But it wouldn't, I, I would but it like, wouldn't matter I, if it's going, justified going or not. I mean, if you're doing it, if you're trying to do a fair investigation, you don't start with that bias. That's why you bring in a special counsel. And so I agree with what Barr did in appointing Durham. But then after that, he dropped the ball. All right. So. So let me let me just throw this out there, because this is the question that sort of woke me up in the middle of the night last night. I was, as I was thinking okay. about what I was going to say on this. Um, and this may come across as inflammatory, but I, I don't mean it that way. Um, and that is, did Kevin Kleinsmith act alone? And Kevin Kleinsmith being the FBI lawyer who altered an email from the CIA, uh, that said, um, Carter Page is one of our assets, is a good guy, uh, to, to read, he is not one of our assets, uh, which was the basis for a warrant. And, and by saying did he act alone, I'm not I'm not necessarily suggesting conspiracy of all these people, but did it, it, it see what what was his motive, right? If if not the idea of of hey, these guys really want to get uh, the warrant, they really want to get Page, they really want to get Trump. I'm going to do my part. Um, it, it would seem to be a, an unusual. Thing just for someone off the top of their head, say, "God, I hate Trump." I'm going to alter the CIA email so we can spy on his um, um, low-level um, foreign policy advisor. Um, and that's that's what that's what troubles me, right? I, I think you're making he did, too he much did that of for this. a reason. Yeah. He didn't do it by accident. Well, of course, he didn't do it by accident. But I think uh, saying that it's some sort of uh, political thing. I mean, it, when you have people involved at various levels in these investigations. They, I think there is certainly going to be a bias for, well, we want this investigation to come up with something. And so we are yeah. going to look for reasons, especially if it's a big investigation where a lot of people's careers can be made. And, hey, if you were part of the team on this one and helped us out, well, you can kind of come along for the ride. And that's regardless of whether it's John Gotti, Donald Trump, you name it, right? Exactly. It's a high-profile yes. investigation. And so, of course, no. he didn't just one day just decide, oh, I'm just going to change this from one thing to another because, I don't know, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling frivolous today. Of course, there were reasons. Yeah. People do these yeah. things for reasons. And, of course, there need to be investigations of this. I absolutely believe that we need to have much better oversight in general of law enforcement. When that oversight itself becomes politicized, then that's uh, – because then you have investigations of investigations of investigations. And I think yeah. this is where we're at at this, at this third level, right? And that's, that's when it becomes sort of this never-ending cycle of politicized investigations. But isn't this sort of exactly what we were talking about just a minute ago, right, uh, of, of we want to see checks on – the police power, whether it's police on the streets or whether it's the FBI, um, because uh, 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 power, uh, you know, power corrupts and absolute yeah. power corrupts. Absolutely. And, and, um, and absolutely. so to, to me, this is sort of exactly the same sort of um, situation. And the other piece that, that strikes me is, is also what what you had mentioned about the, the Memphis officers uh, wearing the body cams and so forth. And they still did it because they still thought they could get away with it. 
and, and that's my sense of of Klein Smith as well. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And to a large, I think, no, to yeah, a large yeah, party yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think he did. He got a very light sentence, and, and he's practicing law again. And so there, there's there's a balance here, and just like with the Memphis, just like with law enforcement, there's a balance. And we, we were talking about this qualified immunity. You you want to make sure that people who have a great deal of power to potentially ruin people's lives or take their lives that they they are held accountable and that they realize that they will be held accountable. But you don't want to do so much to put a straitjacket on them that they are yeah. afraid to do their job, especially when it comes to, say, prosecuting or, or investigating a powerful person who can bring resources to bear against them. And that that can be a that can be a challenging balance. Yeah. And, and I think you'd agree. Yeah, with that. No, absolutely. So, all yeah. right. All right, well, let's move on to foreign policy. Uh, late this week, the United States and the Philippines announced an agreement that would give U.S. forces access to four additional military sites in that country, as well as strengthening ties between the country, which is a relationship that can be especially valuable, I think, in the case of a potential conflict between uh, U.S. and China over Taiwan, which is seeming more and more likely in, in recent years. And the last U.S. troops that left the Philippines, this was in the 1990s, and actually since then the country changed its constitution and they prohibit permanent basing of foreign troops in the country, but temporary exercises and things like that are okay. And uh, this is in the sort of in the larger context of Manila and Beijing being at odds really for a number of years now over waters in the South China Sea that both countries claim as their own. And spokesperson for China's foreign ministry responded to this agreement saying, out of self-interest, the United States continues to strengthen its military development or deployment in the region with a zero-sum mentality, which is exacerbating tension in the region and endangering regional peace and stability. Countries in the region should remain vigilant against this and avoid being coerced and used by the United States. You know, relations between the U.S. and the Philippines, which, by the way, was an American colony from 1898 to 1946, they deteriorated pretty significantly under the uh, Duterte presidency, which lasted for six years, ended just last year. And Duterte was replaced by Ferdinand Marcos Jr. That's a familiar name to older folks because, <laughs> yeah, he's the son of former dictator and close U.S. ally Ferdinand Marcos. Now, Marcos Jr. said he cannot see the Philippines in the future without having the United States as a partner, which is a big change from Duterte, who said of the U.S., I've seen America and it's lousy. Uh, so a big change in viewpoint there. I should finally point out that in addition to its closeness to China, the Philippines is strategically valuable because of the kind of almost jungle-like sort of ocean undergrowth in much of that area, which makes it an ideal place for masking submarine movements. So, Jay, what do you think about the U.S. increasing its military presence, its military ties with uh, the Philippines? I'm all for it. All for it. Um, and you're not. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you, we, we've. Uh, uh, I, I think not to not acknowledge that China is a strategic threat um, is the height of folly. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and China has been seeking to expand its uh, physical footprint uh, in the, the South China Sea. Uh, it is is become increasingly belligerent to other allies. Um, uh, in the region, uh, and I think it it makes all the sense in the world uh, to show our commitment not only to the people of the Philippines, um, 
but to uh, uh, our other allies in the region that uh, that that <laughs> that uh, sphere of influence uh, would be contested. Yep, I am. 100% with you uh, on this. I don't think I have anything to add uh, on that particular issue. I sort of thought this was this was one where we would be in in lockstep. Though though I certainly understand given the fraught history between the United States and Philippines where some people in that country would be uncomfortable with US with, with an increased US presence. I mean, it's not like that some anti-US views came out of nowhere, but I I still would like to believe that we are far superior to the the Chinese alternative, I guess. Yes. So yes. there you go. And, you know, kind of semi-related to this, uh, the, the news that everyone's talking about, right, is that that big Chinese uh, weather balloon, if you believe them, right, that violated U.S. airspace. And it's, you know, seen in multiple, multiple U.S. states, but most famously Montana or Beijing says, well, mainly weather research blown off course. The Pentagon said, I don't think so. Uh, a statement from China on it that read in part, the Chinese side regrets the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace due to for force majeure. Um, which basically means, hey, it wasn't our fault. Uh, and, you know, there were a number of people on the right who said, why haven't we shot it down? Donald Trump said that in all caps. Of course he did. Uh, Nikki Haley, <laughs> you know, that's how you, how you do it. Um, and uh, defense officials rejected that because they felt that even in a sparsely populated area, there was a danger that debris could cause damage to people and or property and that it wasn't posing any significant threat. Though it did result in Secretary of State Anthony Blinken proposed, uh, sorry, postponing his planned trip to, trip to China, which was scheduled to take place on February 5th. And sixth, I should also point out that China has an extensive network of surveillance satellites. It's second only to the United States. And while it seems unlikely that this is some kind of major, you know, major spying sort of thing, though, it would could potentially provide China with uh, information on signals, intelligence, and other things like that. And also, there have been similar incidents with Chinese balloons over Hawaii and Guam in recent years. So. Jay, what do you make of the uh, big Chinese balloon over Montana or wherever it is right now? Would you like to ride my Would you like I needed to work that in here somewhere. Oh, yeah, I think um, it's important. But um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm a little curious whether this is not um, an intentional Chinese uh, a, attempt to uh, scuttle the uh, the uh, Blinken visit. Um, uh, I, I don't know in terms of shooting it down. Um, hell yeah, that'd be a lot of fun, right? Um, uh, I'm not sure whether there's any information we can glean by not shooting it down, right? By just doing something else or capturing it or, or how we go about it, or whether it's our strategic position that we're just going to be like, look, we're so cool, we're just going to ignore this um because it's not a threat i'm not i'm not necessarily crazy about the ignoring it forever um because i think that sends a a message uh to the chinese and allows sort of a chinese propaganda machine of, of look the americans can't even you know take out our balloon kind of thing um uh so i um <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be honest, i think we we do have to deal with it uh eventually i think canceling the blinken visit uh is the right thing to do um uh, even if it may be the thing the Chinese wanted us to do. Um, but uh, yeah, this is, 
you know, this, this aggression cannot stand. Yeah. So I, I think we, um, you know, we, we, you can't just let cede our airspace to the, uh, the Chinese. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, we either knock it down, shoot it down, capture it, deflate it, however you go about doing that. Um, uh, so that we can have one proof that it was a Chinese spy balloon. Um, uh, and two, uh, uh, show that, uh, you know, we will defend our, our airspace. Sure, I mean, there are a couple levels to sort of approach this on. And one level, that kind of straight ahead level you're suggesting is this aggression cannot stand. We shoot it down, we capture it, what have you. And obviously that's a lot more complex. This is not just like some version of a, you know, large version of a Mylar balloon that you might get, you know, for a for a party or something like this. So it, it, there's, you know, a little bit involved certainly in, in capturing it or taking it down than, than maybe what most people would think. But you know, another way, and I tend to agree with you that it, it probably is something along the lines of a Chinese test just to see how we will react. But I, on one level, you can just say, well, we will we will not let this aggression stand. The other level, you can say, well, it is a our handling of it can be sort of a bargaining chip we can use saying, well, we will not let this stand in exchange for X behind the scenes. And of course, there's a lot that we we don't know about what's going on behind the scenes in, in various negotiations, including things about, well, and this is something we'll get to on the, the midweek show about uh, Chinese solar panels. And there are all kinds of underlying issues about, obviously, Russia, Ukraine and intellectual property and trade and all kinds of things. And this fits into that larger scope of issues. But, yeah, as a general rule, I say we can't just say, well, you know, no big deal, no harm, no foul. We're going to accept accept this at your word. But but I also think that just, you know, having uh, fighter jets shoot it down before we kind of think, consider what's going on, that's not necessarily the, the smartest way to handle things. But it would be cool. It would. It would. It would I mean, I, I mean cool. no, I, I do think there's something there's something to the the idea of, of just having this massive blow the thing out of the sky with as much you know firepower as as you can just as a demonstration um at some point um but maybe we're not at that point yet but and, you know uh, like, i think there's there's, there's one a, level to say that 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 it shows in a sense that kind of indifference can show right, exactly more we're than, too cool to worry about it yeah, yeah. exactly exactly so yeah but, but yeah it no, is. I, I hear that i hear that too but I also i i i don't want to get the sense uh um I don't want the uh, the Taiwanese to be thinking, sure, they're not even going to take out the balloon over their own country. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. But uh, but yeah, I think it's it. Uh, my, my guess is it's just going to be one of those things that just sort of comes and goes, floats away, as it were. But certainly, I think we can't just let. Uh, hostile or strategic adversaries think that we just sort of will let slights go, but but yeah. uh, but if if more balloons appear, then I think that's that's another story. But for now, anyway. Well, there's there's one over Central America now. One over Central, so the balloons just kind of keep on coming, basically. So there we yeah. go. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, before we go, Jay, do you have any recommendations this week? Oh gosh, um, can you go first? Can I go first? Well, you know, I, I'll go first. Sure. Uh, lately, I've been watching a really fun new show. As I guess we're talking about Chinese and spies and all that called called The Recruit. It's on it's on Netflix. It's about a uh, it's about a young twenty something uh, attorney for the CIA General Counsel's Office who gets in 
involved in all sorts of interesting, uh, crazy, crazy uh, antics that involve national security and so forth. There's some torture scenes and other stuff like that. It's, it's, it's actually, it's weird. It's dramatic, but it's also sort of funny and, and uh, a lot of fun. And I'm enjoying watching it. So that's going to be my recommendation for this week, The Recruit. Okay. Um, so gosh, I, so can I, how about this as a recommendation? I just want to say, this is what I did last weekend, Mike. I went ice climbing. Ooh. Um, wow. For the first time last Sunday uh, in uh, a place called Fenton, Michigan. Um, they have this set up this like, so you practice ice climbing. It's like um, a, a sort of towers uh, uh, made of, of, of ice. And um, yeah, so we did the, the whole thing with like, like you got like your pickaxe kind of thing and, and crampons and you're, you're roped in like with the belay kind of thing of somebody hanging on. But um, it was crazy. It was, it was, it was super fun. Um, and like my, my forearms, I, I couldn't, like, I couldn't like lift <laughs> or, or like couldn't lift a pencil like the yeah. next day. Cause it's this, um, crazy thing of like muscles you're not used to sure. using. Um, but, uh, no, that was a lot of, that was a, a ton of fun. Um, so if you have the opportunity to go ice climbing, um, I recommend it. I feel like that's a little weird than as opposed to just watch this show or read this book, but you know. yeah, I, I've done, uh, once I've, I've done indoor bouldering, uh, and that I know a lot yeah. of people have done that. It's probably a little more accessible. I feel like almost that you have, you have now. Uh, kind of done the, the uber hipster level of that because this is much more exclusive, right? Oh, sure, you've bouldered, but have you have you done ice climbing? So, Jay, well, we went to we went to like a bouldering gym to do like the practicing for the ice. Oh, climbing. I see. So that is even more exclusive. So yeah, we did we did go to like a rock uh, walk rock climbing gym um, to do uh, yeah like the, the practice stuff. Yeah, that because that um, that's Jay. Jay is an elite. So bouldering it's already an elite thing, but but that wasn't enough for Jay who has to set himself up. He has to go to Michigan to do ice climb because you know it, it's it's winter and his yachts in you know in the dry dock that's what i, I do guess, yeah. with all the yeah. other russian oligarchs and other you know folks and so malefactors of great wealth and so you need to do something in your in your off time i get it so they're, they're, yep they're ice climbing that does sound like a lot of fun so all right well uh before we do go one other thing we want to thank wade our newest supporter we really do appreciate it and as a supporter, of course, you get a bunch of stuff like uh, full access to our complete midweek show, which Jay and I will be recording in just a minute. We're going to be talking about the removal of Ilan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, Nikki Haley's presidential bid, China, a uh, waiver on solar tariff solar panels that some people are fighting now and uh, a continuation of our series on American greatness. That should be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. So if you want to get all that, you can become a supporter. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you'd like to support us on Venmo or at politics guys, you can also support us through PayPal. All of our support links as always are in our show notes as well as on politicsguys.com slash support. If you'd like to become a supporter, but you can't afford to become a supporter right now, but you want all those perks. That's not a problem. Just send me an email, mikeypoliticsguys.com, and I will make sure you get the midweek show in its entirety every single week. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help if you can spread the word by talking about the show on social media, email, carrier pigeon, you name it, whatever works for you. We certainly appreciate it. And that includes ratings and reviews on whatever app you happen to be listening to the Politics Guys on. And if you want to get in touch, touch with us, there's email, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our fantastic Discord channel for supporters, which is always a lot of fun, as well as Facebook and Twitter. And you will find links in the show notes. 
And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.